Well, good morning. So we are back in our uh, part two of our series on the, the Bible. Um, speaking to us is the very word of God. And I thought this was interesting. Do you realize that back in 2008, there were 4,000 books published on happiness, how to get happiness, how to have happiness, how to keep happiness. And that was more than the 50 that were produced in 2000 um, that year. So from 2050 books produced on happiness, 2008, 4,000 plus books pu published on happiness. And I didn't check recently, but what does that tell you? That people are striving to be happy, right? They, they want to attain that thing called happiness. And I believe that when we dig in the word of God, we accept it for what it is, the Bible, the very word of God, that's where we find happiness because in that, in the Bible is where we find the savior Jesus Christ and our place and it tells us of us so I thought this was also interesting that uh, as we're talking about happiness and the Word of God revealing that in us that I looked up the nine most popular places that unhappy people look for happiness okay so I got a little convicted reading through some of this but I'll share it anyway so the nine most popular places that unhappy people look for happiness number one top of the list in their next purchase that adrenaline rush of getting a package in the mail, you know, seeing that Amazon van pull up and, and there it is, you get to open a package, it's just like Christmas. So number one place, place modern generation finds happiness is their next purchase, you know, that bigger TV, that better car, that, that eBay, that Amazon, you know, now you can just, you can even order packages from the grocery store delivered right to your door. Number two, the second most popular place that unhappy happy people look for happiness is the next paycheck. Why? So they can buy their next purchase. <laughs> Isn't that great? Third place is in their next relationship. I mean, come on, in our modern society, forget commitment of working through things. There are people that get addicted to the newness of a relationship and they want those endorphins and those feelings. So they don't stay committed. They, they choose instead to be find that new relationship and then as soon as that lasts for a while let it fizzle and move on to a new relationship next in their next physical enhancement today's society we got new makeup we got botox for boys and for girls now in fact it's funny to watch on tv you see these actors and actresses that do botox <laughs> you know it's like their their foreheads super shiny and thin but there's wrinkles all over it's like something got messed up there right or you see the big lips like the kardashians it's like oh, blah, 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 right it just doesn't work <laughs> but so many people look for that new enhancement that that new weight loss that new haircut again you know that new makeup that new piercing and nowadays that new tattoo right um you know where that uh, uh that little hummingbird eventually becomes a flamingo over the course of years but um <laughs> The next place they look for happiness for a lot of the uh, athletic types is in their next competition, their next Ironman competition, the next trophy that they can brag about, put on a shelf, let it gather dust, and move on to the next one to prove how great they are, right? Um, for some, their next, where they look for happiness is in their next job. Again, this is like the, the commitment with marriage. People don't stay in jobs anymore. In fact, average tenure is 18 to 24 months. They're in a new job. They're in a new, in a new job. Uh, one of the trends that's growing right now, if you notice all the apartments that are popping up, 
the younger generation, if you ask them why they don't commit and buy a house, they're like, well, we don't know if we're going to be there in two years. We've got to be ready to move on. We've got to be able to pick up and go. So their next job, because, you know, the grass is always greener. Where? On the other side. And then they find out it's AstroTurf and it's not even grass. <laughs> so uh, this is a big one. This kind of hit me. Um, unhappy people look for uh happiness number seven top of the list is in our next escape or vacation and i don't know about you but when you have that planned yep there's richard <laughs> he, he's got that one it's like it's the only thing you can think about right i mean you just dwell on this over and over you you look up stuff on the internet you plan you you just dwell on it especially if you're having a bad day at your new job right it's like oh when i'm on vacation finally so um the next thing number eight that unhappy people look for happiness is the next person to solve their problems for them. I mean, it can't be my fault. I didn't create this life that I'm in. I'm not responsible for what's going on, right? Somebody's got to take care of me. Somebody's got to save me and fix my problems. That's another new generational thing. And finally, the ninth place that unhappy people look for happiness, and this is kind of where reality hits, is that after they've looked for happiness in all these other places, and it hasn't happened, is finally coming to the terms of accepting things the way they are. That simple. This is the way life is. This is how it is. It's not somebody else's fault. It's my responsibility, and I have to take care of it. Nobody's going to fix it for me. I have to do it and do something about it. To that, I would add, as Christians, it's coming to that real relationship with God and His Word. Or again, where we're hitting this morning. That happiness comes from knowing God in salvation, having your sins forgiven, because when those sins aren't forgiven, what do they do? They just hang and loom over you and remind you of those past mistakes, those past failures, those past heartbreaks. But to have a holy God that can do what we cannot and speak to us through his word, those living words that convict our heart to finally draw us to the point of repentance, to accepting God's will within our lives, to accepting Jesus as the only way to salvation, that's when I think as Christians we really come to happiness. Last week we began a short two-part series on the life-changing power of the Bible because the Bible truly is life-changing when you really take it for what it is. And we start off with this. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, if you need help, Sarah has the giant print Bible that you can see those words. I can relate with her because I can actually read that Bible because the words are big enough. But um, we looked at this last week. The Apostle Paul was preaching um, to the folks in Thessalonica for only three weeks before he was ran out of town. You know, it's interesting that you see the, the, the people of God that stood for something that are always being run off or chased out because society doesn't want to hear what they have to say. They like life or they think they like life the way it is. But Paul gets run out. So he's, he's preached in Thessalonica for some three short weeks. In that three short weeks, there are a number of people, a small group of people that have come to salvation and formed a small church, and they're actually growing and thriving and living the Word of God. And so Paul is away from them, but he writes back to them, and this is what he writes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. And Paul writes, And we also thank God continually because... 
when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as what? The word of men, but actually as it is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So again, we looked at last week two things. Acceptance for what it really is, although written by men, inspired by God, and then believing in it to the point of application. Uh, pick up after that. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same thing that those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove them out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit, and the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Stop there. So last week we looked at two of three things that the Word of God does as it impacts our life. When we accept it for what it is, written by men over 1,500 years, three different languages, three different continents, 40 different authors. I mean, that's pretty amazing that it all still focuses on the central theme of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior. That all that, that that's the miracle to start with, but then we realize it's God breathed. He speaks to us and it's active. As Paul states, that it's working for us, in us, for those who believe. It's changing us. It's working in our lives. So the first thing we looked at last week was this. The Word of God comes through ordinary people. We looked at those 40-plus people that wrote the Bible, some doctors, some fishermen, some what we call Irish tax collectors, others. But the Word of God came through ordinary people, which the encouraging thing about that is this. It states that God uses ordinary people. And that's encouraging to me because there's not a lot special about me. I'm an ordinary person. No huge title, no huge income, no real claim to fame. Don't even have my 15 minutes of fame on TV or Star Magazine or National Enquirer. Just ordinary. Go to work, go home, go to work, go home. Pretty average. But what that encourages me is this, and hopefully you also that if you take in and receive the Bible as the Word of God and believe it and dig into it and apply it, what it can do is it can allow you to be changed by God. It can go to work in your life and make you usable for God's kingdom. And that's pretty cool, isn't it? To realize that you and I are completely usable in the very kingdom of God, both now and the kingdom yet to come that we get to participate in that. So the Word of God comes through ordinary people, which encourages us because God can use us in great ways. Number two, we looked at this. As Paul wrote the Thessalonians, that the Word of God is at work in us. It's at work in us. It changes our lives. It changes the way we think. It helps us make different decisions than we did before we were Christians. It guides us. It leads us. It heals us. It encourages us. It lifts us up. The Word of God is at work in our lives. And again, we've looked at that, that sometimes we can't see that work. We've talked about over the years that when you become a Christian, you suddenly don't go from ugly to pretty, right? I mean... If you're not pretty, you're still not pretty after a Christian on the outside, but on the inside, you're radically changed because that sin is forgiven and you're a new person. God works on the inside first. 
And sometimes it takes time for that to express itself. A better example is that of a seed. You bury the seed, it's there for weeks before you ever see the growth of that new life. But even though you can't see it, when that seed dies to itself, there is a miracle of life going on in that seed, right? There is growth, there is change, there is activity, there is something springing out of that seed, reaching for the sun, reaching to come out and produce a crop of 50, 60, 100 fold. So God works within our lives through the transformation of the Bible. Um, it was interesting, there was a, a story I came across of a little self-appointed art critic, and this is a, maybe a good implication of why a lot of people don't want to read the Bible and, and study the Bible, but the self-appointed art critic was going around visiting museums and then making articles about uh, the artwork in his museums, and most of them were rather snide remarks about the paintings and they're not as good as everyone says they are in a whole bit. Well, as she was in one museum and she was walking along, she came across one, one frame and she was talking to the guide and she looked over at the guide and looked at this frame and she goes, you know what, I find this one to be really shallow, crude, and lacking in beauty. I've never seen this one before. What is it? And the guide looked at her and said, ma'am, that's a mirror. <laughs> you know, sometimes the Bible gives us a picture of who we really are. And we'll talk about that later, that before you can come to salvation, you got to realize what? you got to realize that you and I are sinners, that we are not good within ourselves, that we are born into sin from the very day of our existence, and that we can't get rid of that sin. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. We can't work enough to get it. We can't shed that sin. And the only way to come to salvation is to realize the ugliness of that sin when it's compared to a holy, righteous, pure God. You see, when we compare ourselves to others, we can always find someone where we can come out on the good end, right? I can find someone where I can say, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm so much better than them. Well, I don't struggle like that. I don't make those bonehead decisions. But when we take that and we compare ourselves to a holy God, we fall so short, don't we? And to realize the ugliness of that, we read the Bible to realize that in that sin, if we don't do something about it and seek the only one who can forgive us in Jesus Christ, that we are literally an enemy of God, rebellious. You know, there are folks in and out of church where they're like, oh, God is with me. God loves me. And it's like, well, have you come to salvation? Oh, no, but, you know, I, I, I've got my God with me. You know, my version of God is what they're really saying. We have to realize the trueness of who God is. The trueness of our sin and our rebellious actions against God to finally come to the point of bending the knee and submitting to God and receiving that undeserved grace, that undeserved forgiveness of God just simply because He loves us and we're willing to come to the beckon of His call finally. That's what the Bible does, and honestly, that's why a lot of people don't want to read the Bible because they don't want to see that picture in there. They don't want to see themselves as a sinful person and how bad that is, do they? Because they're doing okay. Well, I, you know, I, I'm doing all right. I've got this and this, and I have this many friends, and I'm doing okay in life. And we realize that's not what life is about. It's not what life is about, especially as a, as a Christian. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, The sole purpose of man 
is to glorify God. That's what we are created for. That's why God created us, is to be in relationship with Him and to glorify Him. That's our purpose. But when we're living for us, we don't want to hear that because we think we're doing okay on our own. Christy and I have been watching this warped little series on, on TV called Alone. I think some of you guys have seen it. Uh, it's a really warped little movie about taking 10 people, giving them 10 survival tools, and setting them out in the middle of nowhere and just dropping them off, and last person that doesn't tap out wins. Well, it's interesting watching them go through that because there's a lot of people that go on there. I mean, the first two seasons we watched this, within 12 hours on season one, a guy taps out. Now, he's been preparing for this for, for months, doing the training, doing all this stuff, getting all these survival skills. And most of these people, the crazy thing is a lot of them are survival experts and trainers and teachers. He gets out there. He can't even last one whole day by himself. So we dive into season two. Well, that guy makes it an actual 24 hours, but that's it. Now we're in a season three. First guy taps out after three days. They can't make it. And the deal is they get out there and it's called alone. And some of these people that tap out say, you don't understand the psychological dynamics of you think you're all this until you're truly alone with yourself. And there's no job to hide yourself in. There's no relationship to hide yourself in. There's no Netflix and Xfinity or any of that to hide yourself in. You have to deal with yourself. And a guy on three, season three says, I teach survival skills in school. I do this. He goes, I thought I was ready. But he goes, when I had to sit here for three days, truly alone with myself, I realized that I am not ready for this. And it's interesting hearing the survivors, the, the winners of the first two seasons, both of them made a comment, something like this. If you are not happy with yourself and you really can't live with yourself, you're never going to survive out here all alone with yourself. That's where the Bible comes in. Because the Bible speaks to us, and yes, it shows us the ugliness of sin, but then it shows us the grace and mercy and salvation of Jesus Christ, and in that it shows us the beauty that God makes us into. That we are worthy and beautiful, not because of who we are, but the Bible tells us we are worthy and beautiful and meaningful because of whose we are. We belong to God, Creator, the maker of the universe, the one who took dust and breathed life into it, that created all things that is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And because we belong to him, that makes us valuable. That makes us worthwhile. That makes us genuine and authentic and real. And it gives us purpose in life. You see, the Bible does show us our sin to get us to repent. But then it shows us the beauty that God creates in us. Because as the Bible states, God dwells within us. We are that temple that houses the very presence of God. That's who we become. So the Bible shows us that we can be alone because actually, biblically, we're never alone, are we? End of Matthew, Jesus says, I am with you, lo, to the end of, even to the end of the age. That we realize that as we pick up the Bible, the Word of God, accept it for what it is, allow it to work in our lives, what it does is it shows us the sin, but then it shows us the salvation, and then it shows us God at work in us. 
and the very power and presence of Christ himself living in us. As we've said before on many occasions, you and I may be the only Bible, the only Jesus that someone ever sees. And that's pretty impactful. That God would entrust in ordinary people the gospel message, the message of eternity and salvation, the message of hope, just because he loves us. That's pretty cool. That said, I came across an interesting tool to kind of talk about how do we take the Bible in it to allow it to work in us, right? I mean, most of us, have, we've got a couple Bibles, we've had it for years, but we hit those times in life where we just hit a stagnant place. We don't feel like God's doing much. We don't feel called to read the Bible. It doesn't jump out at us. Well, there's a, a discipleship study called um, Master Life written by Avery Willis. And he gives a simple presentation of how to make sure the Bible is working within us. And it's called, called God's Word in Heart and Hand. And the message is simply this is simply a, a, a memory tool to realize how to take God's Word in to make it useful in us because we already know that, like the, the parable of the seed, that Satan will come and try and steal that joy and steal that Word of God from our lives, right? So we've got to be able to hold on to that and grasp it to allow it to work in our lives. So he writes this. The imagery simply is very simple. It goes like this. It says, hold out your left palm. Now, if I place something in your palm and your fingers are stay straight, you can't hold that and protect that very well, can you? I mean, you can't do it. Someone can easily come and snatch that out of your hand because you're not gripping it. So the imagery to allow God's word to work in our life is this. You take your, your thumb. Your thumb is simply hearing the Word of God. That's the start. We hear the Word of God, right? Well, hearing the Word of God, the Bible talks about it, that you need to be a doer, not a hearer only. We still need to hear the Word of God, but not stop there at hearing it only. So if we hear the Word of God, well, if someone puts something in your hand, you can kind of hold on that a little bit, right, with your thumb? But still, it can be snatched away pretty easy. So hearing the Word of God is the thumb. The next thing is your forefinger stands for reading the Bible. You hear it? then you pick it up and take responsibility and read it. The next finger stands for studying the Word of God, right? Hear, read, study. And the next word finger stands for memorizing the Word of God. That's where most of us fall short, is that memorizing, right? And finally, this little pinky, you know, your little teacup pinky that you hold out here so cute when you drink your tea, is for meditating on the Word of God. So hear, read, study, Memorize and meditate on the Word of God. Meditating, simply not sitting there like a yoga with your hands up, but taking the Word of God that you've memorized because the Bible says in Psalm 119.11, I have hidden the Word in my heart that I might not sin against you, God. I mean, that's why we hide the Word of God in our hearts, the Bible, so that we don't sin against Him because we recognize sin. So we hear it, we read it, we study it, we memorize it, we meditate on it, on how God can speak to us in that place. And with all that, when it comes to close, that we have our palm, which is actually applying the Word of God. When we put all that together, we hold on to the Word of God like this. Now it's hard to grasp that from our hands, isn't it? Because we've got all our thumb and forefingers and our palm holding on to that Word of God, the palm being the application part. And now it's hard for Satan to snatch that out of our hand because we've got a grip on it. You know, the Bible talks about um, in temptation, if we don't stand against that temptation, that Satan gets a grip on us. The imagery is of a wrestler getting a grip on your ankle, right? 
Well, this imagery is about gripping and holding on to the Word of God to allow it not to be taken from us, not to be ripped out of our hands and stolen, but to hold it and to attain it and keep it. And I think that's pretty cool. So, look to two things. The Word of God comes through ordinary people, which gives us hope. The Word of God is at work in us as we hold on to it and grasp it and make it part of our lives. And now, the third exciting part about the active Word of God is this. Number three, the Word of God, you're going to love this. This is why you came to church today. The Word of God produces opposition. Now, doesn't that sound good? The Word of God produces opposition. Paul writes in Thessalonians 2.14, he says this, as he's writing to this Thessalonican church, he says, You suffered from your own countrymen the same thing those other churches suffered from the Jews. Now this is ironic because you think about who Paul is, right? Paul was a Pharisee originally, um, whose name was Saul before God changed his name to Paul, but Paul was a Pharisee, a religious person, and actually he had made it his mission in life to destroy the Christians until God spoke to him. In fact, Paul was the guy that approved of Stephen's death and actually held the robes of those who stoned Stephen to death. And he did it with joy and he looked on that he thought he was doing the work of God. Then on the road to Damascus, God spoke to him, blinded him for three days and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And changed his life forever. But in that, Paul writes from this point on to this little church and the other churches that when you take the word of God for what it is, and you hold on to it and apply it, and it begins to work in you, there will be opposition. Why? Because the world doesn't want to hear it, right? I mean, the whole message of Jesus in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the gospel message, Jesus came to bring salvation into the world, and how did the world reward him for bringing that wonderful gift? They crucified him. They crucified him. Paul was in prison constantly. Why? Because he was preaching the gospel. That was his crime. Talk about lack of freedom of speech. We think the debates are bad. I mean, just go out and preach on the street corner and see if you don't get thrown in jail. Why does the Bible produce opposition for those who take it in? Number one, as we've talked about, the gospel exposes the ugliness of sin in our lives. The gospel exposes the ugliness of sin. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. I'm reading this one out of King James because I like how the King James says it. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. Ooh, that's a nasty word. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Well, that flies in the face of our current culture, which says, oh, you have such a good heart. My heart is so good. The Bible says, no, it's not. Your heart without Christ is deceitful. You know what deceitfulness is? Shady, sneaky, backstabbing, undercutting. I'll tell you this to your face and I'll do this behind your back. It's deceitful. Your heart is deceitful above all things. That's the number one thing it is. It trumps, besides everything else that's in your heart, the number one thing it is, is deceitful. Now, don't you want to just hear that message? Um, deceitful. Okay, well, congratulations. You're coming to grips with reality. And then it says, it's desperately wicked 
Why is it desperately wicked? Because it always seeks its own, right? It places itself as that idol. It always looks out for itself as number one. It will do anything to have self-preservation. Open your newspapers, look at the news, look at the writing that's going on, the, the potential writing that's going on. These supposedly are good people that are just out speaking things, but what are they doing? They're having violence, they're having riots, they're, they're making accusations. They're not doing a lot of good, wonderful things. You see, the problem isn't gun control, it's not voting, the problem is sin. That's the problem. You put whatever label you want on it, the problem we struggle with is sin, and the Bible exposes that. You know, there are social evolutionists that claim that humanity is advancing so much, right? I mean, education, technology, uh, we're getting that place of utopia and goodness, right? Because of all of our great technological advancements and, and our great new education and understanding. Well, if that's true, then why do we see more and more horrific acts? Why do we see more violence? Why do we see more of a push for self-gratification and all kinds of sin, candy-coating that and saying it's okay? You know, for all of our great education and technological advancements, it's almost like we're going backwards, right? Because in all that stuff, the one thing it's not dealing with is sin. And until we grapple with that sin, nothing happens. So the Bible gives us two messages about sin. First one is this, the wages of sin, the result, the consequence, the reward of sin is what? Death, period. And most people are afraid of death, aren't they, when, when we really deal with it. I mean, people who aren't Christians, they don't know what really holds out there. They hope in all these things, but they don't know. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible teaches and preaches. But then it goes on in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and it gives this hope about sin. It goes on to write, and, and, and we read this in Romans from Paul again, the gift, gift undeserved, unmerited, a freebie, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, it does paint, paint a negative picture because before you can be healed, before you go on to being whole, you have to grapple with reality and who you are, right? Only then can you take those steps to, in essence, get fixed. So the Bible says the wages of sin, the reward of sin, the consequence of sin is death. And without salvation, our hearts are desperately wicked and evil. But there's another message in the Bible also, and this is where the hope of God comes in, that says that the free gift, the graceful gift of God, if you will receive it and accept it, is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that's where the world has op opposition. Because I guarantee you, there's nobody out there that wants to hear that gospel message that says, what you're doing, how you're living, is sin, right? Some of us can think of our lives before salvation, right? That's not the message we want to hear. Well, you Christians are just a bunch of holy rollers. Well, yeah, we are after we have salvation. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're holy rolling all the way through there. But we have to come to grips with who we are. And so there's 
instant opposition with the Bible being the Word of God because if God is right and all of us pre-salvation are wrong, then our future is hell. And that's not a message people want to hear. So they oppose it. Remember, greatest thing that sinners do when something opposes you, what do you do? You just destroy it, kill it, and get rid of it. Get it out of your hair. Don't even deal with it, right? And that's where the opposition comes in. But number two, the gospel also forgives undeserving sinners. And that's also a message that a lot of people don't want to hear. There's a story of a pastor who was um, doing prison ministry. And he's in the prison ministry with a group of other people. And he's preaching the salvation message. And there was a social worker that was just frustrated with the whole deal. And he pulls the pastor aside and he's like, look, I've got to ask you something. I'm not a Christian. But he goes, I really get perturbed with you guys coming in and preaching to these people that they can have salvation. And the pastor's like, well, yeah. He's like, you mean to tell me that a convicted rapist, a serial killer, a child abuser can receive the gift of salvation just the same as I can a good law-abiding, working, good, tax-contributing citizen? And the pastor's like, yeah, that's the gospel message. There are no bars that keep Jesus out. And the social worker's like, that's ridiculous, and that's why I don't want anything to do with the Bible. The good news is, as the pastor writes his story is, that same social worker later became so convicted he did come to salvation. And now he's in leadership at his church doing <laughs> prison ministry. Kind of ironic, isn't it? But it creates opposition because people that think they're good within themselves don't want to hear that Charles Manson could have salvation. That Lori Daybell could have salvation. They don't want to hear it, right? Because they think those people, what? deserve punishment and deserve to die. And that's where if our eyes are not focused on the Word of God and on Jesus Christ and the salvation gift to us, we don't put ourselves in the same place as those convicted killers, right? We don't think our sin is that bad. But the Bible says this, the wages, the reward, the consequence of sin, it doesn't say which sin, it just says sin is what? Is death. And when we think we're doing well, we don't want to hear that our little white lie, our little stealing from the office is as bad as serial killers. We don't want to hear that. But to God, again, when we compare ourselves to each other, we can always be on a higher standard. But when we compare ourselves to God, the holiness of God, we lose and we lose big time. And people don't want to hear that. So it does create tension and opposition. Third thing is the gospel predicts, forewarns, tells us, big neon sign, that there's a punishment for sin. As Paul wrote about the Thessalonian church, those who were coming against them, he writes this in 1 Thessalonians 2.16, In this way they always heap up their sins to the limit, and the wrath of God has come upon them at last. There is... A consequence. The Bible tells of a day when those who don't accept Jesus and salvation through grace and grace alone through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, will still have punishment and will still have hell. It's not about how good of a person you were. It's not how much you gave. It's not about how much you were in church. It's about the condition of your heart being redeemed by Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible speaks. 
And again, when you and I can't control the situation, doesn't that make us a little bit perturbed? Right? Because we want to have that control. We want to be able to manipulate things the way we want them to be. And to realize that we have no power over getting rid of our sin or getting to heaven. It's only through the gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Well, that challenges our pride. That challenges our control. That challenges our lifestyle. And many people don't want to hear that. As Paul wrote this to the Thessalonian church and said, those who are coming against you, their punishment is going to be upon them. Interestingly, in 70 AD, the Romans attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the entire city. Paul wrote this a few years before it happened, and many theologians think this was God's punishment upon the city for rejecting the gospel message. Now, many people don't want to hear about hell. But it is a reality according to the Bible. Jesus speaks of hell quite often, right? Um, it's not something he's hide or, or cushy about. Um, but as we talk about hell again, we've got to realize that we're sinners before we can come to salvation. The first spiritual awakening in America in our new land with the colonial states was in 1730, where it's interesting to think that these colonists left England to come over and have freedom of religion. The, the, to not be under that Catholic Church anymore and their dominion and rule and to have that freedom. And yet, only a few years later, a few decades later, there was a spiritual deadness in the colonies. I mean, it didn't take long, right? Didn't take long, only a couple de decades. And in their living here, spiritual deadness hit even the church. Well, in 1730, there was what's called the first American spiritual revival. And the man that did that, who, who pushed that forward, the man of God who did it was Jonathan Edwards. He's got some interesting stuff to read. Again, old 1700 stuff. But one of the sermons that he preached that's very, very famous about the spiritual awakening was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, Jonathan Edwards wasn't just a backwards country bumpkin. He was highly educated. In fact, he graduated from Yale. He married the daughter of the first president of Yale. And if you remember, not now, but back then, Yale, Harvard, and Princeton were all founded to train preachers. Oh, how far we have gone away from our original roots, right? They were originally put and established to train preachers. But Jonathan Edwards graduated from this very intelligent man, and he preaches this sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God which has stood through the centuries. And let me share with you a little bit of what he spoke to the people in that congregation when he preached that sermon for the first time. He said this, The bow of God's wrath is bent. The arrow is made ready on the string. The justice bends the arrow at the heart and strains the bow, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God without any promise or obligation at all to keep the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus all that you have ever passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all that you were never born again are in the hands of an angry God. It is nothing but God's hand of mercy that holds you from falling into the fire of every movement. It is to be ascribing to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. And there is no other reason to be given why you do not have not dropped into hell since you rose up this morning, but that God's hand 
has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell, since you have sat here in the house of God. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop into hell. Wow, don't you want to go to church and hear that? I mean, this is to a church. This is a preacher preaching this message to the church. And the thing about Jonathan Edwards is this. He was not a tall, big man. He was small. And he, the, the, the history records write that he was not a fire and hellstone, hell brimstone preacher. He didn't bang on the pulpit. In fact, they say that when Jonathan Edwards gave his messages, he simply read the words that he wrote in a high, squeaky voice. <laughs> <laughs> right? But it also, history goes on to write, is that when he preached this message, this little short guy, without banging on the pulpit, without a lot of emotions, just reading the message that God gave him in this high-pitched voice, history tells us that the men and women in the congregation were holding on to the pews in tears so they wouldn't fall down in guilt. That's powerful. Jonathan Edwards concluded his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, with this paragraph. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity a day where Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him, being Jesus, and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming that were very lately in the same way, miserable condition that you are in, and now are in a happy state of life with their hearts filled with the love of Jesus, who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood. You see, the gospel, the Bible, convicts us of sin first. It's got to call sin what it is, sin, and it's got to tell you the truth, the consequence, the reward of that sin, but then it gives you hope in Jesus. And that's why it creates opposition. But that's why it's also so important that we have that in our lives. As the Word of God, the Bible is so powerful. Last story tells of um, 1949. The Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Church appointed a Texas pastor by the name of Julius Hickerson to serve as the first missionary in Colombia and South America. His specific task that they gave him was to build a seminary in Cali to train Colombian pastors to share the gospel and to start other churches in Colombia. So, Pastor Hickelson sets off to go to Colombia. But before he ever landed in Colombia, before he ever could build a seminary or train pastors to share the gospel message, Dr. Hickerson died as the plane went down before it got to Colombia. Landed in Venezuela. It is stated that two years later, as the Baptist Church sent other missionaries to preach to Colombia, they decided to go into the interior of Venezuela and speak to the native tribesmen the message of God. And it stated that when they showed up, these natives said, oh, we are already followers of Jesus. And the missionaries were completely surprised because there had surprised because no missionaries had gone into that area. They asked how the natives came to salvation and heard the gospel message without any missionaries. 
and they simply explained that they have found a book that fell from heaven. It was a leather-bound New Testament written in Spanish with the name Julius Hickerson engraved on the cover. There was one single member of one tribe that found that Bible in the plane crash that could read Spanish, which the New Testament was written in. So he went from village to village and read from Matthew to Revelation the gospel message of the book that fell from heaven. And the tribes came to salvation before the missionaries ever got there. Julius Hickerson died in a plane before he could build a seminary. But in God's plan, he brought salvation 